Hey, we are going to be in the Old Testament book of Haggai. Or Haggai. Some say Haggai, just like some say Capernaum. I, I think it's supposed to be Haggai and Capernaum. But nonetheless, Haggai. So you uh, just want to start from Matthew and go left. That's the shortest distance to get to Haggai. If you want to start with Genesis, we'll wait for you to get there. So you have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So Haggai, we have, I've shared last week when we were in Zephaniah, a little map, a layout if you would, and we can get some more of those if, you're, if you'd like to get another one, um, showing kind of the chronology, showing which prophets were, were where in regards to um, the uh, chronology or history, you know what I'm saying? And so tonight we're going to be looking at Haggai, and Haggai was at a time when uh, he's what they call post-exilic, or exilic, after the exile, after they were in captivity for 70 years, then um, Haggai is the prophet, a prophet that God speaks to while they're back in Jerusalem. Those who chose to go back to Jerusalem are now under the, um, they have a work to do, and um, it's time to get it going. Let me, let me give you a, a little background. Israel experienced a difficult season of correction. So they experienced a time of captivity because of their disobedience to God. Uh, consider this. Um, this is a quote by Warren's, Warren Wearsby. Too often, we drift along from day to day, taking our blessings for granted until God permits a natural calamity to occur and remind us of our total dependence upon him. Now, you know that's true in your life, too. Wouldn't you agree? Whether it's health-related, uh, financial, relational, whatever. You know, sometimes we're just kind of going along. But then these things happen. And, and it's not so that we'll wake up. I believe it's just the reality of a fallen world. But it is an opportunity to wake up. In other words, God's not punishing us. Now, in the case of Israel... They literally were told not to do something, and they did it anyway, and they were told what would happen if they did it, and they did it, and so then they experienced the consequences. So we have this, this principle, if you would, that when we kind of take things for granted, then, then God does permit a natural calamity. The calamity for Israel was not so much natural as it was national. The nation had just drifted along independent, insensitive, unconcerned about obedience to God. And that's really just a summary if you look through that season of the, of the history of Israel. The result is God enacted um, uh, correction in the form of captivity. Israel as a people were led into 70 years of incarceration at the hands of the dreaded Babylonians. So where we're going to pick up in Haggai is that period is ended. Zerubbabel and Ezra, they both brought a group back to Israel. Haggai's name is believed to be an abbreviated form of the phrase festival of Yahweh. And that would cause people, the scholars to speculate that he was probably born on a day of the major feasts of Israel, one of the major feasts. That's where his name comes from. As I mentioned, it's a point when they are back in Jerusalem, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi um, address the Jews who returned to Jerusalem after the 70 years of captivity. To catch it in kind of more of a, you want to catch a, a deeper insight into the timeline, so to speak, read Ezra and Nehemiah, because this is all at that same time and things taking place. And so let's just, we're going to look at one passage. If you want to hang a left to Ezra, I want to read this to help kind of get us in frame of mind of what's taken place. In Ezra chapter 5, and I'm just reading two portions where, where the only two places that Haggai is mentioned. In Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, then the prophet Haggai, and notice Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, and Yeshua, the son of Jozadak, 
rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. And, and the helping them is not just the, the bringing the word, which is really essential to what they were doing, both Zechariah and Haggai. But I believe it's a street-level understanding as well. They were helping them. They were a part of the work. They, they got their hands dirty. You know, in Nehemiah, there's one group of people. Uh, they were uh, the nobles. I think it was the Tekoites. And it says in Nehemiah, but the, the nobles did not put their shoulder to the work. And, and of all the people that were listed and did the various portions of work on the wall, which, which was another work that would take place in the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the only ones that were really negatively mentioned were the ones that were a little more of a status who really didn't put their shoulder into it. They really didn't get into the work. And you think about it. Why do I mention that? Why do I look at this? Because Jesus, he came, as we, we see as the, the studies, of the, those of you who are going through the book of Mark, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to teach what it meant to be a servant leader. And it's throughout the Old Testament that there's this element that God teaches us to lead. We don't, we don't elevate ourselves. Well, I don't do that anymore. I don't, I don't clean up toys because I'm, I'm the parent. I don't help in this way. Most parents know to really teach your kids to clean up the toys, you usually, at least the first few times, get down there with them. You get down there and you pick things up and you do it. And there's a picture there, if you would, for us to realize that as we grow in the Lord, we grow in our knowledge of how to serve. We start serving, and we don't get to the point where we're, we're above it. The, the very people, Zechariah and Haggai, these are, you know, these were, these were uh, um, revered men, if you would. When they brought the word of the Lord, those who received it somehow understood it was from God. And these men knew they were bringing the word of the Lord. It's, it's, it was this interesting season, agreed? When humanity received communication from God from another person, one of the prophets, it was a fascinating time because they, they totally, uh, they responded. They understood. And so here are these guys, they're, you know, they're, they're literally doing the work with them. They're in there amongst them. I think it's so important to recognize as we desire to serve one another and follow Christ. Now, while you're there in Ezra, take a look in chapter 6. Another mention of Haggai in verse 14. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So it's given us a history of um, bringing in the secular leaders that were a part of this process in, in a sense that they reigned at during times. You know, the prophets in this case are mentioned, the historical reference is secular leaders because there was not kings on the throne in Israel or Judah at this time. So it's interesting how there, there's a reference more to, to these secular leaders. Moving back over to Haggai. I like what one scholar had commentary, had summarized. Haggai calls the Jews in Jerusalem, that are living in Jerusalem. He calls, Haggai is, brings this message where God is calling them to renewed courage in the Lord, renewed holiness of life, and renewed faith in God who controls the future. So it's, it's this courage in the Lord because they have been in the land for 18 years and the work's been sitting dormant for 14 and we're going to see why and some things in there so they're they're just you could say maybe discouraged but there's a time to be courageous a time to step forward in the work that God had given them and also in holiness of life of not you know kind of trying to merge uh, carnal desires and interests and calling them spiritual but rather to separate the spiritual and to know what obedience is and in order to do that, we know it's without faith, it's impossible to please God. Doing that, believing, okay, I need renewed faith in the God who controls the future. So let's pray, God, as we would consider these truths, what an amazing record you have, not just of history, but of your story. Teaching us, Lord, through history, what it means to follow you. Showing us, Lord, your loving kindness, even as you would correct. And discipline your children is because of love. 
And so tonight, God, as we would look into your word, may we consider what you have to say. May we ponder and wonder the application, but may we do it with an expectation, expecting you to speak to us and to teach us, to encourage us and equip us, to lead us according to your word, according to your truth, according to your design, according to your specific call on our lives individually, as you have also called us together to work as a body collectively. And so, God, thank you that we would know your love, that we'd see your grace, that we would walk in faith in a greater way. Work that out of us, Lord, in us and through us for your purposes. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Haggai, chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So let me give you some history. Some of you will trigger. Some of you are like, okay. But in 538 B.C., Cyrus, king of Persia, allowed the exiled Jews to return to Jerusalem after 70 years in captivity. What's interesting is a lot of them didn't want to go. After 70 years in exile, they decided, you know, we've made a good place for us. We're, we're getting by. I don't want to journey all that distance back. I'm good with this. Well, those that went back um, two years later in 536, construction on the temple began led by Zerubbabel. Then the work, it lasted for two years, and then it, then it stalled. And we know it was stalled a little bit from what Nehemiah shares with us, because as they started the work, then the Samaritans, the Samaritans were the people that occupied Jerusalem for that 70-year period, because it's pretty simple. The people who live here got hauled out. And now after a year or two, you're like, well, we might have, someone should live here. No one, they're not coming back. Who knows what their logic was, but they kind of moved in. And so it wasn't just them, it was different you know, people obviously had just kind of said, well, let's just kind of move in there. Well, we know that when Nehemiah came and started the work, that there was accusation made against him. That, that word was given to the secular king that, hey, this group of people, these Israelites, they have always been rebellious. You remember reading that in Nehemiah? They're, they're just going to rebel. All they're going to do is build the walls, fortify themselves, and then defy your, 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 your leadership. And so the work was put to a stop, a cease and desist, you could say. So they had to stop doing the work. And then, of course, it was Nehemiah and others that said, hey, wait a minute. No, we've got the paperwork. We've got the approval of the king. So it kind of stalled for a while, and then part of it was in that time. And then the work was, you know, after 14 years of neglect, the work on the temple resumed again in 520 BC and was finished four years later in 516. So that's the, the kind of what, where we're, we set the stage historically. Now look what's happening in verse 2. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So... Let me read the next one. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying. So the perfect timing of God is to be preferred over the misguided perceptions of men. So this is what, and notice, maybe you caught it. The Lord, this, this, is, this thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, this people. Have you read that other places? I think it's other places, but I don't remember reading it. What does he usually say? My people. But he says, this people. Now, he's not saying um, they're not my kids, they're not my people. It, it, it's kind of when you're bringing correction, you're saying, wait a minute, you're, 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 you're saying this. You're not really listening to me. This people, they, they say the time's not come. Now's not when we should be working on the, 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 the temple. We should just be doing our own thing, and it's not the time. And, and of course, you know, the perfect timing of God is when the word of the Lord came to Haggai. In verse 4, he says, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? So paneled houses really speaks of they're not living in tents. They're actually, uh, many believe that they actually had 
like a home in one place and a home in another place. The, the uh, vacation home or the recreation home or the uh, scenic home, so to speak, and then the home where they live while they're in, in Jerusalem. And so what's interesting is that's what the people were, say, were doing. They were building, but catch what they were saying. Well, now is not the time to work on the Lord's work. I've got my own work to work on. I'm doing these things. And, and so now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. I'm reading in verse 5. Consider your ways. Now, you notice he said the temple lies in ruins. And that's what they came back to do, to work on the temple. They were the first wave, if you would. And that's what they were excited about. They were people, I believe, many of them, some, well, at least some of them as young children, were taken into captivity and are now being brought back. We're going to see that here a little bit later. And so they had a memory of God's glory in Solomon's temple, which was just desecrated, which destroyed. And so they're like, they come back, but now they're there for a little while, and they're not doing the Lord's work. They're just making their own life more comfortable, and we're living in this lap of luxury, if you would. And so he says, consider your ways. That word's going to stand out. We're going to see it five times in these two chapters. Consider, and it, it literally is like... Wait a minute. Think about it. And it's not like, here, do this. It's like, just consider your ways. It's a very um, inviting word in the sense of it's like it, it, it invites me and you as individuals to not try to find a group um, uh, justification or explanation. Well, we as a people do it this way. It's very individual. Consider your ways. How are you doing this? What's, what do you, how are you working this out? Are you working it out? Think this through. Consider your ways. And now, now there's, listen, look what he says here, what he does here. Because this is not a housing issue. This is a heart issue, okay? And we need to understand that. It's a heart issue. The people were leaning towards luxury rather than serving the Lord. And so we see in verse 6, You have sown much and bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. I think people can relate to that. It's like, man, you just described my life. It seems like the harder I work to have enough to get by, the more I, I'm down. And so he's, he's identifying here, the Lord's saying, consider this. Consider your ways. Because ultimately they were holding out on God to build up their own thing. And in the process, they're actually cutting their, cutting, they're just putting everything in and bag holes in it. And so verse seven, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. I titled this study even just that, this book. This is study wise. Consider your ways. Because once again, that is not a um, overbearing, like judgmental, you know, heavy-handedness that God's saying, you've been doing things wrong. He's just saying, stop and think about it. Is, this, is it really working out the way you think it would? Is it really unfolding as you do things this way and you're ignoring this over here? Is it really working out for you the way you hoped it would? The way you were convinced it would? Verse 8, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins. Well, every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you, heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains and on the grain and the new wine and the oil and whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. So he's literally saying, you know, you, you keep ignoring me when you came here to do this and you have this in your mind. And, and so you put your hands to other things. And I just, I, he's basically saying, I just made those unfruitful. The more you worked at it, the less it produced. The more you're about it, the less it come about. Now, don't see this as a, a principle of prosperity where, okay, I get it. I just go serve God more, and then he's got to cut loose more change. It's not a financial formula to where God is indebted to you. 
It's a principle of the heart. It's a condition where he's teaching them, listen, you, when you're giving your heart to this other stuff, it doesn't produce. I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, deceive you and mislead you by giving you more when you're going astray so that you could feel like going astray is okay. He's like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to correct you as you keep doing this. And, and we know if you think about it, let's turn to um, Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives a, a teaching on this, on the Sermon on the Mount, specifically in verse 19. In Matthew 6, verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Once again, Jesus addresses it as a heart issue. I find it very fascinating, quite honestly, that God gives um, instruction to be good stewards. We are managing his resources. Can we agree on that? Even though we would say, well, this is my account, or this is what I've inherited, this is this and that, and I get the logic of it, but let's track with that logic. Who had this stuff before you did? Whether it's the money, or the property, or whatever, somebody, and who had it before they did? Somebody, and you can just keep going backwards. And if the Lord tarries, who has it after you do? Well, somebody. <laughs> you could say, well, I'm going to hand it off to this or give it to this person. Yeah, and what do they do with it? You get it? It's, it's, you're, 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 we are the ones that in the b- bigger picture, we're just kind of, we're just managing it. And I believe we should manage it with the, with the principles, with the truth, with the understanding. But where I was going with this is what I find fascinating is God does not mandate. In other words, you will give this and this and this. He does tell us about tithes. Tithes is 10%. It's a percentage of what he's entrusted to us. And he does speak to us about giving not only tithes, but in offerings and giving according to what he's brought about this increase in our life, according to what he's entrusted to us. But it's not, we don't give to get. We, we give out of the heart. Because we're told in the New Testament the, the God loves a hilarious giver is the word that's spoken of. A cheerful giver. One who's not encumbered by a formula. That's not res- like, oh, I got to do this. or I have to do this. So this will happen. It's a person who realizes, man, I just, I just know God's going to multiply. I know God provides. And those of us that have, have tested this a little bit, I think my, young, my life as a young Christian, I, I was not into financial support. I would rather sweat than write a check. I would rather go work at the church than actually financially do something. And I, part of that was because we just didn't have any cash flow. We really were kind of single income, six kids, you know, working in a truck shop. You do the math. It's not, that, it's not complicated. But the fact is, I still had time and resources for a motorcycle or a shotgun or sporting stuff, or all this other stuff. So God actually just, I, he was very patient with me, but he's very, I would say, lovingly persistent to teach me. Dan, the more you hold on to, the more it gets a hold of you. The more you learn to loosen your hands responsibly. You can't just say, well, if God, if I give a little, God will bless it. So if I give everything I own to him, then he will compensate that for me. He'll take care of that. And no, that's, that's a give to get theory. But instead, in the heart, like, Lord, I'm just going to give this amount. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, I don't want to fall into this trap. They fell into a trap. And, and this thing, what we're looking at here, as we move from Matthew back to, to Haggai, you can see it was, a, it was a mindset of justification, that a principle didn't apply to them. And God says, I love you too much to let that get its meat hooks into you, to let it grip your heart. And so he said, basically, I, I just pull, I kind of pulled back on my part. So the farmer who thinks he can, you know what, I don't need God. I can do it myself. All I got to do is, you know, I know how to work the soil. I know how the time to plant. I know how to do what to do. Go for it. You kind of need the God of creation to get it all done, though. Because you're like, oh, I didn't know there was going to be, you know, a drought. I didn't know we were going to have a 100-degree-plus heat wave through the entire summer and burn my crop. You know, well, guess what? 
You, it isn't all in my hands. It's not all in your hands. And I think it's important whether we see it from an agricultural perspective or just a, a stewardship perspective. Let's be careful. Consider your ways. I want to be careful that I, I don't fall into this foolishness. And I, I love how God is handling this because he's not condemning them. Let me just give you a phrase, uh, a person I quote frequently, uh, uh, Pastor David Guzik, he, he, he put this sentence together for this section. It was time for God's people to start being concerned with pleasing him instead of themselves. And that's what it really come down to is that relationship where they say, you know, I, I want to do what pleases God and instead of just paneling, my, making my house more luxurious. And so we see the people respond. Notice in verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. Continue on with this, kind of moving through to verse 15. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the heart of Zerubbabel, who's the governor there in Jerusalem, Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, he's the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Going back to verse 12, the people we see respond and obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. It is one of the most essential elements of spiritual growth. It's why some people stall, because they won't do this. Some people will absorb the truth. They will hear the word. They'll, they'll ponder it in their head, but they will not put it into practice. They'll go from a meeting to meeting to meeting and social connection through Christian engagement, whatever. But it says here that the, the, the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. What did the obedience involve? They put their hands to the work. They, they were in obedience to what God had called them to do. And what I find interesting is this prayer or this you know, response, it, it really should be our prayer as we pray for revival, as I mentioned that, you know, needing renewal, not only of courage and obedience and faith, but just in, in our walk, as we pray for revival, we pray for a, a work that, where God would, as you notice, stir up the people. Did you see that? God stirred up the people. Wouldn't we agree that if we believe that he's the God of grace, that he empowers us, that he calls us, empowers us, and equips us to everything he calls us to. He doesn't invite you to be a part of a work contemporarily in this age, your age, or time, in this season here in Mountain Home, in this gathering. He doesn't call you to that and say, good luck with that. He fully equips, fully prepares. He does the work. And so we would recognize, hopefully, that, God, I, I, I need that stirring within. And I find it interesting, if you notice, that he, he stirred the people, but it was after they obeyed the voice of the Lord. So what does that mean? It's, and I think the obedience element, the first part, is what even Jesus modeled as he was facing the ultimate, um, the biggest trial, the biggest trouble in the salvation of humanity, when he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Literally shedding, sweating, drops of blood, in agony, we're told. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In that internal moment that you and I, not in any way to the gravity and magnitude of what Jesus, the example I just give you, but in a personal way, when this obedience is like, God, not my will, but your will be done. Not what I want to do entirely. I, I just kind of hand that to you. Show me what it is you'd have me do. Not my will, but your will be accomplished. And in that reality, then there's this stirring. And I believe it's a, not only a stirring. I've seen it over the last 25 plus years, 23 of those here in Mountain Home. The stirring is actually bringing people together. As we would pray individually, maybe, you know, some of us, some, well, a couple of you were here 
back in the day, 23 years ago, when we started as a fellowship. And we prayed for God to provide people, to bring people of like mind and people who don't know him and someone that could lead worship and someone could help with this. And there was 15 or 20 of us gathering on a Sunday morning. Well, there's fewer than that when we're gathering in a home, uh, just in a house, and then gathering on Sunday morning, and then we see it each year in different ways. Like, Lord, we need you. He stirred us. You see what I'm saying? There's an element of obedience saying, God, not my will, but your will. And then he gives us wisdom and shows how his, he brings his provision. And that's really what the people are going to experience because as they start to work, they see um, really ultimately verse 13 and on, and you can see is God's response to the people as they've responded to him. They've responded in obedience to the word that was brought to them, and then God stirred them up and knit them together, uh, the people. Let's go on to chapter 2. Now, it says, In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, to Joshua the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Very interesting um, statement. And that he's, he's saying, you guys remember the old one? How's this compare? And they'd be like, it doesn't. <laughs> it, there's, it, it's just it's so different. It's so much maybe smaller, if you would not, not size-wise, but in majesty. And so the emphasis here, though, is, is upon... Um, it seems to be on, on doing the work he's called you to do. Yes, Solomon's temple was amazing. But God built that temple as well, remember? David actually collected the resources to a degree because David wanted, Solomon's dad, David wanted to build the temple. But God said, I know your heart, but you got blood on your hands. Not only did he have blood on his hands, from doing the things God called him to do, but he seemed to be a little bloodthirsty at times in the things that he did and some of the men that worked under him. Anyway, God just said, you're not going to do it. Solomon will build the temple. So David did a lot of the collecting of the resources. Solomon was an agent through which God worked to bring about craftsmen and different resources and to assemble this, this one temple. And so in this, I, I want to encourage you, what we're seeing as we're going to move through this is, you know, he said... You know, who has seen what it was before? And then he goes on in verse 4, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. So he wasn't drawing comparison. I believe he was awakening him to the reality that he built the first temple, and he built it the way he wanted it to be built at that time. And he's going to build this temple, so the application would be for all of us, do not compare or compete. Simply obey. Simply obey. His beauty is revealed through our obedience. It's an amazing thing. His beauty is unveiled, opened up. We see it more through our obedience. And so he tells them, listen, I'm with you. You can't get a better partner in the, in the project than God himself, who says, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm in this. I think there was some, some speculation, what we can see even from some of the other writings. I think Ezra gets into it a little bit, how some people were borderline despondent when they seen the difference between the temple as they're rebuilding it and they're recalling from their memory and the, uh, the account of, of what even their parents would have told them had they not lived in Jerusalem and been, and been born in captivity. This thing doesn't compare to what Solomon's temple was as the way they would sort it out and, and try to figure it out, you know. So, so we see here as he says, I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 5, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear, because fear is the one thing that will interfere with obedience or with faith. It's like contrast. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an interference. Faith is what we need. We need to be able to see and walk. Now notice he said in verse 5, 
I was with you when you come out of Egypt. This generation didn't come out of Egypt. It was many generations previous that come out of Egypt. Do you see what he's saying historically? God is telling them, I have been with you every step of the way. I was there, and, and when this, when you became a nation, when God, who delivered Israel from, from the time they became a nation to the time of Haggai, he's saying, I'll provide your needs. Because you've got to understand, I believe, because this is a physical work with a spiritual power. But it's, you, you're going to get bloody knuckles. You, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get sweaty. You're, it's going to be, it's physical labor. And so it. Sometimes it's like, man, is there, what's the point of this? Why, what is, is this just me doing this? And he's saying, listen, I'm with you. From the very time that I led Israel, they went into captivity as a family. They come out as a nation. And he's led them all along the way. And going on to verse 9, as we work our way down, verse um, 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 9, the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Very fascinating statement. We see in this, in verses 6 through 9, we want to remember the prophecy as it's presented is oftentimes has three elements of fulfillment. There's the immediate, there's the imminent, and then there's the ultimate. The ultimate, I'll just carry you to, we're looking forward to the ultimate. When, when we know that this temple, uh, the, this new heaven and a new earth and this new temple and this new Jerusalem, and it's going to be pretty phenomenal. So there's that, but then there's also a fulfillment that came along later because it said this temple, this latter temple, the temple after Solomon's, will, was, was going to be um, greater than the former. How could that be? How could that possibly be? Because it wasn't to the eyes of men. Solomon's temp- temple was magnificent. This temple was greater in a different way. The Messiah, Jesus, will enter this temple. That's what makes this temple so much greater, is who enters and who occupies, who comes into, not to take up residence, but to really even call to repentance his people. And so, in this place, I will give peace. Let's move on to verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, no. And Haggai said, if one is unclean because of a dead body, touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, it will be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people. And so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and whatever they offer there is unclean. So what he's saying is if, if something is unclean, and it touches something that's clean, does it make the clean unclean? Yeah. But, what it, but the clean doesn't make it this which is unclean. You understand the Levitical law? Make it clean. So what he's saying is you have this thing, and we know he addressed it, one of the issues in the first chapter, you're doing this physical thing, and, and it's, it's not before the Lord. It's not for the Lord. It's for yourself. But you're saying you're doing it for the Lord. So this physical thing doesn't make this over here a holy work. It actually dirties, if you would, this holy work. Because it's not, it's not, it doesn't work that way. Because this is uh, it's actually unclean. So he's using this thing, that, that's this picture that they would understand and, and, and kind of presenting them. Listen, you guys think about how you're, you're presenting this. The priest knew, according to the law of Moses, holiness is not contagious. Impurity is. They would understand it. They would get it maybe in a deeper way than we do, but we get it. You can't just say, well, I'm doing this for the Lord, but then you're doing something else. 
I mean, our culture is saturated with stupidity called spirituality. Seriously, there's sexuality that's immoral. There's sexual practices that are in place. There's viewing of pornography. There's literally physical engagement. That is people, then people say, well, it's okay. God understands me. When his word says, don't do that. And they treat it like, well, you know, he's just trying to hold back so that I don't get to enjoy some of the pleasures of life. No, he's helping you not destroy your life. He's preventing you from impurity that will tear you apart. Sexual engagement... Is, is a powerful thing. It's an amazing thing in the human experience. And God set it with parameters, with design, because he knows how it brings two people together. And when, when people divorce or when people you know, have these casual sexes that talks about now that's so seemingly be, it's promoted, that we have this culture, this age, is sexually obsessed. That's why they want to talk about what they prefer to do to you. And if you don't agree with them, you're a prude or whatever. And it's, they're sexually obsessed. But we know this. I heard this analogy years and years ago, and it's so true. When two people have sex together, against God's word, obviously, when they're not following his framework, his parameters, it's like when you glue two pieces of plywood together, and then they decide, well, we're not going to do this. Day. We're, we're going to separate. We're going to go our own way. We're going to do our thing. And it's just like tearing those two pieces of plywood apart. They don't come apart clean. There's a part of each one stuck with the other one, and it's a torn up mess. And yet, our culture says, no, it doesn't bother. It doesn't affect. It's just between. It's nothing. Don't make it a big deal. It's not a religious thing. We, we see that there's this merging of saying, oh, it's okay. You know, some of this stuff I'm referring to is just as common in the church as it is outside the church. That's a sobering reality, a scary statistic. We want to be very careful that we don't call it okay when God says it's not okay. And then somehow think that, well, as long as I go to church enough and as long as I do this other stuff, this will, these things will offset this thing. The two will merge together and then they'll both be pure. No, they won't. The unpure will, you know, will bring impurity. It's like, it's not that complicated. I believe when he's saying this, I think it was kind of one of those points in this engagement and this prophecy because the people really were motivated not out of fear but out of, out of awareness of God. And so as this is brought to them, they, they go, they, it's like those breakthroughs. Like we, we call it, can I use this phrase, it's the light bulb moment. You know, where you're kind of working in the dark on issues of your life and you're a little floundering, you're stubbing your toe and you're, just, you're kind of sorting it out, you kind of got it, but you don't. And then for whatever reason, it's like someone just turned a light bulb on. And it just makes sense. All of a sudden, it comes to clarity. You have tears sometimes of shame and, and yet tears of joy because you realize you've been released from what you didn't realize. And now you realize it and like, oh, God, thank you. The light come on. I think they had a light bulb moment. Let's go on with verse 15. And you catch this again, I'm sure. And now carefully consider from this day forward. From before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when, and this just speaks of a time when there was just, it was hard times, when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, but there was 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, but there was but 20. The time when I struck you with blight and mildew and hail and the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now. From this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it, is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. From this day I will bless you. I think it's similar, we have to at least wonder, to when he set a rainbow to remind us of something. Remember? It was after he'd flooded the earth. He said, listen, I want you to understand, we're moving forward from here. And here he's saying, because we read it previously, and this is very practical. Okay, so I was just trying to do my thing and fund my thing and all this. And in doing it, it was like putting money in a money bag that had holes in it. And it just kept going away. Moss and rot, moth and rot. It just kept, it wouldn't. So Alex, actually God was allowing that to happen. So that I would learn to follow him. So I got to follow him because if I don't, it's going to happen again. Oh, no. Because I, I, see, obedience out of fear is different than response to love. And so here, if you're doing this, now he's saying, listen, from this day forward, understand. 
We're going to go forward with this. I'm not going to keep hanging this over your head. I used that principle. He could do it again. He doesn't say, I won't ever do that again. That's very important to know. But he's saying, listen, we're going forward from this day. As a people who choose to follow me, to, to put me first, and to be truthful and real about the relationship, then you know, we're moving forward from this day. It's, it's fantastic if you think about it. He doesn't have them act retroactively. He doesn't have them, you know what I'm saying, make payments for where they're behind on everything. Instead, he's like, from this day forward, I will bless you. Blessing upon obedience. When their priorities were properly aligned and obedience by faith was practiced, the people experienced God's blessing. That is the truth that carries through generations. Let me read it again. When their priorities were properly aligned and obedience by faith was practiced, the people experienced God's blessing. It wasn't because of works. It was because of the relationship they had. This offer wasn't presented to the, not, to the Gentile nations because this was a different dispensation. It was the time. Now since the cross, he offers the same truth to you and I. That when we're willing to, as I say, um, obedience by faith, we can even throw there because of love, we practice that, we experience his blessing. We experience his presence. From this day I will bless you. I want to learn from the past, but set my eyes on the present. Blessing will be in his perfect timing, so um, just set your mind and heart on him. Why do I say that? Well, they're going to experience his blessing, but there's still hardship. You know, they're still going to have to build the temple. And they're still going to break a finger. One will probably lose an arm. I don't know what all happened. I'm sure there was some, some problems because it was physical labor. It was hard work. But he will continue to bless them. Bless them. Maybe you've experienced where you're looking for God's blessing and you have a subconscious definition or uh, assumption of what that blessing will look like and when it will take place. So you begin laboring because you know he's going to take care of it and then you buy this. Day. But then that day comes and goes and it doesn't happen. And now what's being tested? Your faith. Your faith is being tested. Okay, well, gosh, did, and you have to stop. And go, well, did I read into that more than was said? Was I anticipating it because I preferred it? Because this is what I've noticed in those times, and sometimes they're a lot longer than I ever thought they should be. When I see God's provision, I see his blessing, I see his protection, it's through a long period of doubt in my life. Doubt's not required. It's just something I entertain on occasion. And so going through that, I look back and go, man, God, you were so faithful. Your blessing came in a different form. It taught me greater understanding, a deeper endurance, a, a, a much stronger realization of your grace because it came this way. It didn't happen in the form of a healing. It didn't happen in the, you know, finding the winning lottery ticket or whatever, you know, we kind of reel into it and maybe think it might work. Just remember, his timing's perfect. His blessings are perfect as well. We're going to wrap it up here and we go into verse 20 to 23. 20 to 23, you remember I mentioned in prophecy, there's the immediate, the eminent, and then the ultimate. This is really the ultimate fulfillment is yet to come, I think, is the main thing we can pull out of this. The word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. Now, this was, he was really directed this more than the others to Zerubbabel, and for him to be aware of, I believe as a leader, he, he, he faced different types of challenges, and of course, and God's saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. And horses and their riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. Verse 23, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shaltiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. So Zerubbabel is encouraged as a leader. He's encouraged, and, and we see, I believe, what's being described there in the latter part of verse 21 and 22 is that day of the Lord, that final day of judgment when God will judge the Christ-rejecting world. He'll judge um, those who decided they wanted nothing to do with him. But what about Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel, my servant. Some have presented to ponder and wonder 
that he might be one of the two witnesses of Revelation, which is an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about that. It's like something to ponder and chew on. But I'll tell you this. We know this. Zerubbabel is listed in the line of Christ in the bloodline through Mary in Luke chapter 1 and through the legal line of Joseph listed in Matthew 1. Isn't that interesting? Very fascinating that he's listed. So I would just say that puts you in the chosen department. You made both lines. You know, that's, that's pretty phenomenal. So he's an interesting guy um, because he was the leader that helped. With very little spoke about him, quite honestly. But yet he was a critical part in bringing the people back and enduring a season of, of uh, completely ineffective leadership, if you would. They're not working. For 14 years, no one's doing anything. And I'm sure he had to, like, really struggle to figure out what he was doing and why he was doing it. Notice he's encouraged and you're encouraged. We're encouraged when God's telling us, listen, I, I, am, I am with you. Consider your ways. I am with you. I will bless you. Let's pray. God, thank you for these truths. Thank you for your presence. Thank you that you teach us these things, that you write upon the tablet of our hearts these very truths. And that, that principle or that picture, Lord, is so important. Because you dwell within us. You, Holy Spirit, have taken up residence within us. And you lead and guide us into all truth. You bring to our remembrance the things, the words that Jesus has said. And so, God, with that, we are dependent upon you. We ask, God, that you would stir us as a people. You'd stir our hearts. God, that we would know how to obey you. And we'd be willing to obey you. May you not have to pour out hardship and difficulty upon us before we are stubborn and resistant. God, may we be led by you, stirred by you, responding to you and glorify you in all that we do for your glory and for our joy. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.